this is, uh, we did a bit of this last time, but I thought I would back up uh, and look at verse 7. And what I, I'm going to make an argument here that verse 5 7 uh, is talking about the hard teaching. Uh, and the specific nature of the hard teaching, and I'm gonna, I'll lay this all out, is uh, it's obviously connected with the priesthood of Melchizedek. I think it's connected with the resurrection of Jesus as that relates to the uh, priesthood of Melchizedek. And I'm making this argument because, partly because Hebrews... Uh, does not focus on the resurrection of Christ. And some have gone so far as to say that the resurrection has been left out of Hebrews. And as with the Gospel of John, that what they do when they say that, they say, oh, well, this is a Gnostic sort of text. Uh, and what I'm going to argue, and that is in arguing for the resurrection in Hebrews, we're arguing a bodily resurrection, bodily ascension. We're arguing against the notion that this is a Gnostic text. So I think it's important to see that it's there. Cyril O'Regan, who's kind of the grand expert on Hegel and Gnosticism, he identifies six things that happen in modern you know, theological liberalism in its turn to, uh, to Gnosticism. And first he says that in a traditional Christian understanding of how uh, God and God relates to the creation are understood as focused simply on the death of Christ. That is, the, the death is focused on and the resurrection is kind of passed over as not being of significance. Second, they say that... Uh, there, there is a shift towards a pneumatic or a spiritual kind of, you know, so you'll get often the idea, well, Jesus, it was a spiritual resurrection. We really don't. Yeah. And, it was, and it's the same, you know, uh, if you, you know, the Gnostic teaching, we think, is that that was there in John when it says that anyone who says that Christ has not come in the flesh uh, is of the Antichrist. And so it's, it's strange that people read John as being Gnostic and Hebrews as being Gnostic because I think pre, that precisely what's happening in these two books is then an undoing of Gnosticism. So that's sort of the project here in uh, talking about uh, the idea of the resurrection and what we mean by the resurre resurrection is the bodily resurrection and we need the bodily resurrection for the bodily ascension this I think is aimed precisely at what Protestant liberalism is doing but also then the early Gnosticism and it's all it's a, it's of a similar thing you know so uh, the other thing that's happening in Gnosticism, you guys probably know, that is also happening in liberal Protestantism, uh, is that they think that the problem of evil is, first of all, uh, inadequately addressed in Scripture, and that in some way, you know, God himself needs evil. So I don't know if you've done much with Hegel, or, but it's also there in the early early Gnostic texts. So, this is uh, uh, Stephen Long. He says, the conditions that make possible a Gnostic swerve in modern Protestant theology also contribute to a rejection of the central teaching in Hebrews that's present in the Chalcedonian definition, that Christ is without sin. That is, it doesn't matter. Uh, in fact, this sinful, you know, if you uh, the, the idea that Christ has sinned is not a problem at all, but it's significant to the writer of Hebrews. And so tonight, one of the things I want to do is define what the writer means by sin. Sin is connected to faith. Faith is connected to the orientation to death, which is connected to sin, which is undone by resurrection. I'll, I'll run all that down here in a minute. 
So, uh, in the ortho, for Hebrews in the Orthodox Christian tradition, Long says, sin is the problem of humanity and not God. And so it's important that Christ did not sin as a human being because he's redoing, recreating humanity. James says, when tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. God can do no evil. He cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. Uh, and I think that, that should just be our basic definition of, of who God, God, you know, when we say God is good, uh, that he is goodness, and therefore there is no evil in him. Uh, so even in a Calvinist understanding, you know, there's the need for sin or the need for evil so you can have redemption. Well, I think that's, first of all, a, a misunderstanding of sin and redemption, but it's also a kind of blasphemous understanding of who God is. And so part, I'm, I'm afraid that's really what's happening in the arguments that, especially surround Hebrews and John, uh, that, oh, well, these books are, you know, that it's a spiritual redemption. No, I think that, that resurrection is front and center here. So I think the writer of Hebrews is arguing that sin and evil are addressed in the person and work of Christ. And this is inclusive. We've been through, we're at, you know, been through the idea of his sinless suffering, his faithfulness, you know, in chapter 2, in the face of death, and it's here in this chapter, I'm arguing in verse 7. That is, uh, verse 7 is where we have a little bit of trouble understanding what what is verse 7 referring to, and I think it is the same subject uh, that he's talking about in chapter 2. And if that's the case, this faithfulness directly results or is tied to the resurrection of Christ. So look at verse 7. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears to the one who could save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverent submission. Uh, So the question is, uh, you know, what what is being taught here? let me skip ahead. Uh, the possibilities, it could refer to Jesus' exaltation. You know, he prayed that he'd be delivered, and and so he was in some way exalted into the heavens. Some say he prayed and that the prayer was ex- uh, answered and that the death of Christ was taken to be efficacious, or that the efficacious nature of priests... I, I think all of these are wrong. They're not hitting the main point. What he's praying is that he might be delivered. Was Jesus delivered? Yes. He was delivered at res- in his resurrection. Right. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's okay. yeah. Uh, he did. He died. He died on the cross. Mm-hmm. So I think it, it's the answer to the question of chapter seven the, or verse seven is obvious that Jesus' resurrection from the dead is the answer to this prayer. Okay. Uh, Adolf von Harnack says, oh no, uh, that actually the text has been tampered with, and the original text said, and Jesus' prayer was not heard. <laughs> but, <laughs> oh, gosh. <laughs> well, we don't need to go there. <laughs> no. uh, so, uh, his prayer was heard, and he's saying that this is you know, this is the beginning. He says, okay, now I'm talking about hard stuff at this point. So it's referring to Jesus' likeness to the priesthood of Christ. He's going to take that up in chapter 7, actually at the end of chapter 6. Why is this hard teaching hard? That's my question here. And, I, you know, I think it's hard because the, partly because the, of the difficulty we've had. When we talk about the bodily resurrection, the bodily ascension, uh, that this is the mediating work of Christ. That it is to mediate all that it means to be human to God and all that it means to be divine to humanity. Mm. So I believe Hebrews is, you know, when he's talking about Christ as high priest, that he, the creator... Uh, is 
all that the creator is is mediated to creation, and all that creation is is mediated to yeah. creation. I told Gary that line. He told me, oh, keep that one. So. <laughs> And in do and and so in the way that I've just said this, we are not focused on simply the death of Christ. In other words, by saying that the writer of Hebrews is focused that the resurrection is playing a role in this, then it's also his life, his death, his resurrection that all of that is part of the salvific work of Jesus' high priestly ministry. The traditional you know, doctrines of atonement tend to focus exclusively on the death of Christ, and some people read Hebrews in that fashion. But I think we're missing the main point here, and it kind of lends itself to a Gnostic reading. Uh, so the way the writer talks about the two realms being brought together... Uh, that uh, it may be a, you know in six two of instruction about washing and he he makes a departure here yeah. of laying on of hands and the resurrection of the dead, but he's talking about he's saying okay this is elementary thing in six two the other place he he mentions resurrection about four times and you know the other place in chapter eleven when he's talking about Abraham, right? In Isaac, your descendant shall be called. He considered that God is able to raise people even from the dead. So when we talk about, and that, you know, chapter 11 is the faith chapter. He's going to mention Abraham here, the section we're in. What is the, the nature of faith? Well, a Abraham is prototypical of faith, but notice that in the faith chapter, that it's actually Christ's faith that is the culmination of that chapter. And so whatever Christ did in his, and what I'm claiming is, it's his faith, his faithfulness in the face of suffering and death. In this verse, he cried out with loud prayers and petitions, and God heard his prayer. This is an example of the faithfulness of Christ. We, again, the writer of Hebrews makes explicit the idea. It's not just that we have faith in Christ, but we have the faithfulness of Christ. The other is 1135, that uh, women receive back their dead by resurrection. Uh, and in this verse it says, so that they might obtain a better resurrection. So he's actually talking about resuscitation, you know, a resurrection like Lazarus. But then there's a better resurrection, the resurrection like Christ. The only clear reference to Jesus' resurrection is 13.20-21. to 21. Now the God of peace who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord equip you in every good thing to do his will working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. We're at the end of the book. You know, here is the concluding idea. I'm claiming that this verse, verse 7, is a subtle allusion to resurrection, to Jesus' resurrection specifically. So it says, you know, in the days of his flesh, he offered up prayers and petitions, he learned obedience, you know, uh, having been made perfect. When was he made perfect? I think so. I think his resurrection, his ascension, is the perfection. Not the cross. And many people are going to say, oh, he was made perfect at the cross, and then they make that argument, and then they say, well, what Jesus delivered in the Holy of Holies was his death. No, what Jesus delivered in the Holy of Holies was himself. And all the, you know, and so that's the, that's the significance. Yeah, the cross was, he became our, our propitiation, God's propitiation for us. He is our atonement, yeah. 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 Uh, so, 
Uh, to understand 5.7, we need to recognize that Jesus stands as the chief example of the pattern in which God rewards those who faithfully persevere in times of testing. That's the, the book of Hebrews is about persevering and persevering in the face of potential persecution and death. And Jesus is the paradigmic, you know, the, the, the paradigm here of faith. And he's already said that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Uh, and we've, when we did that verse, we talked about, well, this isn't on the earth. This is in the heavens that he does the work of mediation. But what, who is it that's in heaven? It's the Son of Man. It's the Jesus who was resurrected. It's the embodied Jesus who was tempted in all things. Yet without sin. Yet without sin. Which is key. Because what is sin? Well, whatever, that, that's the point here. Sin is a lack of faith, you know, but in 2.14, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself also looked, partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. What is the slavery of sin? It's the slavery to the fear of death. What's the cure to the fear of death? Belief in the resurrection. Faith in the resurrection. What was, you know, this is Jesus is demonstrating in his loud cries and petitions the faith that we are to have. He's appealing to God in the face of death. He trusts his life to God. Uh, this is, you know, the case with Abraham. What is the faith of Abraham in chapter 11? We just did that. Well, there's two instances of it. Uh, the second instance is with Isaac, that he offered up Isaac, believing that he would receive him back from the dead, and he did figuratively, the writer says. So, in uh, Hebrews 3, he says, Take care, brethren, that there not be any of you in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart <clears throat> that falls away from the living God. Unbelief, lack of faith, dying in the wilderness, failing to come to the living God, and dying. In other words, lack of faith and death are connected. Having faith in the face of death Resurrection life are connected. You know, 3, 7, 17, 19. Was it not those who, sin, who, who sinned whose bodies fell in the wilderness uh, and to whom he did swear that they would not enter his rest? What happens if you don't enter his rest? You do not have, in other words, this is a present tense thing that we can presently experience um, resurrection life. 4, 2, 3, for indeed we have had good news preached to us, just as they also, but the word they heard did not profit them, because it was not united by faith. So what is faith? Faith is resurrection faith. Right? What is sin? Sin is fear of death. Succumbing to, you know, the deception of the devil in some way. So faithlessness in the midst of testing is sin, is connected with sin, which leaves one subject to fear, subject to deception, subject to the devil, subject to unrest, subject to dying metaphorically in the wilderness. So the comment that Jesus was without sin when tested implies that during his time of testing, Jesus was characterized by faith. So Jesus is not simply, you know, he's our model here for faith. Uh, Jesus, uh, in 5.7, he trusted and cried out to the one who was able to save him. Save him where? Out of the realm of death, through resurrection. So a key element of faith was the belief that God was able to resurrect him out, out of death. And so in this naturally flows into 6.2 when you know, faith in God in the face of death, resurrection is part of the elementary teaching. It fits with Abraham. And we ought to be beyond that elementary teaching. We ought to move beyond that. Oh. Yeah.
And the writer is going to say, at seven, let's press on. Press on to what? Then he goes on to talk about Melchizedek and the high priest and the meaning of the ascension of Christ. So literally, it's an upward movement. The higher you go, the deeper you go. Maybe that's too simplistic. but uh, that Jesus at the right hand of God as son, as embodied, is a hard thing to cry, is a hard thing to apprehend. Uh, I think that Jesus' prayer here is an act of obedience. Uh, it follows that Jesus' faithful endurance, even unto death, implies, and the word here in it, he was saved due to his reverence, due to his piety. It says, although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. So he wasn't just given stuff carte blanche because he was a son. He, it was real. There was a reality to it. Yeah, The full reality, I mean, that's what you're getting in the Garden of Gethsemane, I think. That he's, this isn't fake. This is, you know. That's the new, the new word. Fake. Fake news. Fake news. <laughs> yeah. yeah, the Donald Trump uh, version of, I don't know. Uh, <clears throat> piety or reverence is a kind of str- interesting word, but I, I found the cross-reference in Second Peter. Seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life. And godliness. And godliness. Well, that's good, Gary. I'm impressed. And the word... <laughs> The word godliness there is the word reverence. Yeah, this says godly fear on my version. So I think you're trading godly fear for fear of death. Mm-hmm. You're trading everything pertaining to life to everything pertaining to death. Mm-hmm. And that's contained, I think that's the piety, that's the reverence. Um, so the reference to Jesus' prayers, his cry being heard, the idea here, this echoes the prayers of the Jews, you know, the Israels crying out uh, in times of need, and they're heard, and God delivers them. So when it says that God hears, that means you're delivered, right? God doesn't hear and say, like Harnack says, nope, <laughs> sorry. But if he hears your prayers, then the idea is, well, Jesus' prayers were heard, and so he was delivered. Uh, and so how was he delivered? I think, in fact, through resurrection. Uh, God's salvific action on his behalf, and of course it occurred not before his death, but after his death, in his resurrection. He was saved out of the realm of death. And so Jesus' faith was rewarded, our faith will be rewarded, in that God hears and saves from the realm of death. And this is uh, consistent with the author's argument about faithful endurance. You know, this is the theme of the, the uh, sermon here, really, is to endure. And if you endure, you receive God's promise. What is God's promise? He will save us from death. He'll deliver us, you know, from uh, slavery. So if you take 11, 17 to 19 and 5, 7, you compare Jesus and Abraham. Both are tested. In both, the writer speaks of God having the power to deliver them out of death. That God is able to save someone out of death appears in both passages. Faith in God's power to save motivates the faithful behavior. That is, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Jesus cries out with these, and, and it, it is his, that is a, an example of faithful behavior. In both instances, the faithful endurance is rewarded. Abraham receives Isaac back again as though from the dead, and Jesus is raised from the dead. There is the story of what the counter to sin uh, and answered in faithfulness. In both passages, Faithful perseverance leads to salvation. Uh, And so faith in God 
as the one who, and this is similar to Paul's argument in Romans 4, you know, the Romans 4, that though he were as good as dead and Sarah's womb was dead, yet Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Uh, so I think in both cases it's resurrection. In the midst of Jesus' faithful suffering, God heard his cry and did exactly what 1320 the verse I read that's clearly about Jesus' resurrection, he brought him out of the dead. And if you, you know, at 12, in 12.2, if you read, it's actually Jesus. If you go through the list of the, those who uh, were faithful, yet they did not receive the promise. Right? They were faithful. That, and then it comes to Jesus, and he's the example of the one who's received the full promise. What is the full promise? Well, it's three things. It's the heavenly home, it's a, and, uh, a heavenly city, and a better resurrection that I just referred to. Uh, so, the conclusion. Jesus' resurrection is not ignored. It is the category that is necessary for the bodily exaltation to the throne in heaven. And it proves a fundamental assumption about the claim of Christ as high priest, he's passed through the heavens, that is, it's post-death, post-resurrection, ascension, and so he, the, the high priest is taken, he's able to sympathize, he's, he's the son of, you know, he's called the son, he has humanity, he's called by God, but I think the third thing is he has an enduring life. Uh, the son of man, the high priest is one who, you know, this high, high priesthood goes on forever. So he is able to sympathize and mediate eternally for us. So Hebrews is not a Gnostic text in which Jesus flies away. I don't, I've always been uncomfortable with the song, I'll fly away, you know. Yeah. Uh, well, actually, Jesus' bodily ascension is precisely not Jesus flying away. Because his bodily ascension is what provides his body, the church, right? We are his body. The incarnation continues. He's present to us in his body, and he's present through his body. Gary said this to me as we were walking. We're given another counselor. He binds us in the body of Christ. He enables us to cry, Abba, Father, there is the participation in the Trinity. So this is a hard saying, but here is the essence of what the meat of the word consists. The resurrected, ascended, bodily Christ. Hey, but, go ahead. No, you say that first. I, I'll Question? That's <laughs> <laughs> all I was going to say. Okay. Uh, I mean, when you say he ascended to sit at the right hand of the Father... It sounds like he could have flied away. Floated. I think that if he floated away, you know, kind of flying away, that it would have been a spiritual ascension. He would have passed through the material, physical, created realm and passed out of it. And I think that's the way a lot of evangelical Christianity looks at the ascension. Eastern Orthodox Church, you can't do that. This is a, you know, it is... The bodily ascension is a very much a necessary doctrine, but it's also tied to a, an Eastern Orthodox understanding of atonement, which is inclusive of the life, death, resurrection. So I think that the bodily ascension, as Jesus promised, is the the that is it's the the created reality is mediated to God and God is mediated to created reality which shows itself forth in that we are the body of Christ. I don't think you get that with a disembodied ascension. So, I have a question on like in Acts there is this thing that they're looking into the sky and they see him ascending I mean, so we know that's what what happened. We also know that the body of Christ um, is the church. That's 
uh, applied to us. So, where exactly is the right hand of God, and how how is the connection there? I mean, if He ascends into heaven, how is it somehow it becomes a spiritual versus a physical one? Why why does it have to be well if He is inside of a, a different physical realm and somehow is disembodied by necessity? Like why is that necessary? Hmm. Or am I misunderstanding what you're saying? I'm saying he's not disembodied. I know you, you're saying that, but the, the language about if we say he ascended in a certain way, we make it disembodied. I think why in... Is, why is yeah, I think that the tendency, and that that is... I think that because of the doctrine of the atonement as we have it in the Western Church, we have not we focused on the death of Christ and not on the resurrection and ascension. So if you ask somebody in this, you know, in the West, how does Jesus save? They will talk in terms of his death and then just tack on the resurrection. But the logic that I just went through here with Hebrews, Jesus is saved in the resurrection. Not to in any way take away from the death of Christ, but to focus on the fact that uh, it is not, what is being offered is not the death of Christ, but what is being offered is the life, death, and raised Christ who's seated at the right hand of God. And of course the significance of the right hand of God, it's metaphorical, but it's a metaphor for God's action. His right hand is his redemptive, active you know, work. And Christ then is at the one through whom the redemption of God is being carried out. And so it is a redemption for the entire creation. God, Paul says that the creation itself is groaning and travail awaiting the appearing of the sons of God. So it's not simply that Christian souls spring up to heaven and are saved. It's that the new Jerusalem comes to earth and the kingdom of God is for once and all established as an earthly kingdom. Certainly a reconstituted, recreated earth, but it's been recreated through the work of Christ at the right hand of the Father. So I think we are co-participants in that redemptive activity of God as the body of Christ. We're at the right hand of the Father too. I think that we're in participants, that's the language of Hebrews, that we can enter the Holy of Holies. We have access to the very presence of God. It's a very different, you know, it's a very different focus than a Christianity focused on going to heaven when you die and not going to hell. Yeah, it's also something that it's not like focused on something that you want to wait for either, but you have a, like a, you know, the, the, uh, but you can participate with that type of, uh, you know, situation now. And that's what the writer of Hebrews keeps saying. Enter his rest now. Now you have Sabbath rest. Paul is making the same argument, you know, that we can experience resurrection life from the point of our baptism. Not that we're literally, but that we begin to live out a resurrection life. When, he, when Jesus cries, or just, is that because of him doing because of fear of death? That's the way I'm reading it, is that I think that Jesus' faithfulness is itself uh, the attitude, you know, in a sense, his whole, you know, it's sort of like Abraham. When did Abraham face death? Well, when he left his home and country and he went into a strange land, in a sense, that was the beginning of a journey 
what was cutting himself off from the normal attitude, normal, uh, you know, veins of life, uh, that he was without home, without, you know, country. Uh, and so Abraham's entire life was a, was a journey into death. Abraham is, you know, it's up against chapter 11, that's Babel. The Babelites are the faithless ones. They would just storm the heavens and not pass through, you know, the journey that Abraham passes through. And so I'd say the same thing about Jesus, that he, his whole life, you know, this is the way John tells the story of the life of Jesus. This Passover, this Passover, this Passover. It was always a journey toward his death in Jerusalem. Not to say that, you know, his life then was an orientation that reversed the satanic or the deception of the, the devil in which we would flee from death. You know, the disciples, as they, they're at, uh, they're, Jesus says, well, let's go to Bethany, you know. And they say, well, they're trying to kill you, Jesus. And he says, well, that's okay. Then he says to Peter, well, I have to go up to Jerusalem and die. Peter had just made the great confession, and Peter says, no, Jesus, you're mistaken. Yeah. And Peter, Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. That is, that's the satanic temptation, is to flee from Jerusalem, to flee Thomas, from death. Thomas said, uh, mm. hey, Thomas is always called a doubter, but he ought to be called Thomas the Daring, because he said... Let us go with him that we might die with him. Yeah, <laughs> that's good. That's good. Yeah. Let's read, and if you have comments, David will straighten us out here if we made any mistakes. Maisie, you want to read verse uh, 7 again? Mm-hmm. who in the days of this flesh when he had offered up prayers and supplications with vehement cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death and was heard because of his godly fear he submitted he reverently submitted to death his cries were heard I mean what else could it be but other than his resurrection I think. I mean, I think it's obvious. All right, and then verse 8, Mary Jane. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from what he suffered. Keep going. Yeah, go ahead. And once made perfect, he became the source, and once he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. And was designated by God to be the high priest in order of Melchizedek. So the the language here, you know, we talked about this last week. He says, "You are a son, and you are a priest." And of course, the significance of the the two categories: son is human, son is all that messianic, you know, fulfillment there. So he's uh, he's the fulfillment of Israel. Here is true Israel. Here's the true king. But the true son, the true human one, is the true high priest. So he, he's a son who really did learn obedience. He really did face death. And he was, you know, the word here, made perfect. Uh, on the cross, you know, it is, I think, the, the idea of the goal was certainly there in the cross. That at that point, I believe Christ completed his earthly work. But I think the resurrection then is the, uh, the you know, the, the end of that goal. So, it's not, not Easter eggs and hiding them <laughs> in the grass. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm sure that there's some Easter bunnies in there somewhere. Easter bunnies. <laughs> All right, then, uh, Dave, you want to read verse 11? Right, I mean, we I'm going through this real quick, if anybody has any questions. But, uh, so we the, the writer is calling for us to be obedient. How are we obedient? Well, we're obedient by following Christ as model. 
to be faithful in the face of death, to have resurrection faith. Uh, and then verse 11. We have much to say about this, but it's hard to explain because you are slow to learn. And this is where he digresses for a chapter and says, you know, the whole thing about, uh, I think that this is the hard teaching of Christianity. We've just hit it. Restate it. The resurrected, ascended Son of God saves us. I think our tendency is to say the disembodied, disincarnate Son is real or you know that is that our tendency is toward disin, disincarnateness our tendency is toward all fly away little souls bouncing off up into the air so I think it's a hard teaching because our tendency is to be Gnostic our tendency is to be dualists our tendency is to believe the lie of Satan there you go that's, it. that's, that's our tendency and the lie of Satan is you won't die. In other words, what Satan is saying, you know, that even when Adam and Eve die, you know, I think the lie holds that people imagine that death is not death. This is, you know, in, in Asia, we, you know, this is obvious that oh, they didn't die; they they're still out there. Mm-hmm. And at Obon, what was it? Overseas in Japan and China. It's just, yeah, it's, uh, ancestor worship is pervasive. I think it is the universal. I, I'm suspicious that ancestor worship is what you're getting in Egypt in the time of Moses. So what, what is the natural belief of human beings? To deny death. Say it's not a reality, that death is just crossing the river, that death is just in Platonic terms, shuffling off this mortal coil, which is actually Shakespeare, but it's... (laughs) All right. uh, Verse 12. Gary, you got that one? Okay, verse 12. In fact, though by this time you ought to be teachers... You need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's Word all over again. You need milk, not solid food. Anyone lives on milk? Am I going too far? Anyone lives on milk, being still an infant, is not acquainted with the teaching about righteousness. But solid food is for the mature who, by constant use, have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. And this apparently was a pervasive metaphor, the metaphor of milk and meat. Paul uses it too. That, you know, you need the milk of the word, Paul says. You're not prepared for the meat. The writer of Hebrews, though, he says this, but he's going to go on and say, well, you you guys should be teachers. But you're you're stuck in basic things. And the basic things I'll talk about next time. The the ablution, the the washings, the resurrection, you know, it seems... Baptisms. Yeah. Healings. What do you think all that is? What do you think it's referring to? What do I think it all is? It, it, yeah. You have a, I don't know, I'm just... Um, he says, you know, by this time, you know, I've gone beyond that. And, and, and I look at it and I think, you know, some of us haven't gone beyond that. We're still arguing about baptism. You know, why are we? We ought to be beyond that. That's a basic teaching. Yeah, and so that's what I think of. I think maybe I'm not beyond that. Maybe I need milk instead, <laughs> instead of meat. And I, I, I Hebrew is this awesome book. Unlike Paul, though, he says, "Let's push ahead to the to the hard things." In other words, Paul says, Paul backs away and says, "You're not ready for this." Writer Hebrews says, I'm going to lay it on you. Yeah. And he does. And the way he does, he goes back to the you know, price, the, the priesthood of, of Melchizedek, the high priesthood of Melchizedek. And the beginning around. Yeah. That we know of. That's heavy stuff. 
And it's neither beginning or end, not about the pre-existent Christ. It's about the incarnate Christ. So how is Christ the priest? Well, the qualifications require him to be human. So they're not having trouble with the deity of Christ. They're having trouble with the humanity of Christ. And mixing the humanity and the deity, I think that's still our problem. What we would do is unmix it. And I think the right, the, what Hebrews is doing is not saying, oh, let's go through and say, okay, this is the humanity, this is the deity. What the writer of Hebrews is saying, these things are fused in Christ. So, and that, by the way, that's a bit of the difference focus in the Eastern, and, in the Eastern Orthodox Church and the Latin Church, is that... Uh, the, the idea that you can separate out the humanity and the deity. But the argument that split the Eastern Orthodox and Catholics was the when 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 Easter was or something like that. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's what it was. And on uh, they celebrate it one day, we celebrate another day. <laughs> All right. Everybody, any other comments, questions? Alec, did I hit your question? No. <laughs> you actually just totally talked about the, the assumptions that I was already holding, but didn't answer what I was actually getting at. Oh, okay, try again, try again. I, <laughs> so, see, I, I'm really good at answering stuff that I know, and so I just twist your, your question to make it a question I can answer. I don't know is perfectly fine with me. But, all right. So I'm just going to lay the presupposition so you don't have to answer this. Um, We are the body of Christ. Um, Jesus Christ has had a bodily resurrection and is embodied. Um, Scripture says he ascended and is at the right hand of God. Um, Earlier, what I was hearing you say was we are the embodiment of Christ, essentially. Does that then mean that there is not a distinct embodied Jesus Christ inside of um, whatever realm the right hand of the Father is? And I get that we are embodied by the Spirit, but I'm actually... um, I feel like if we equate those two too closely, we get a disembodied Christ or a Christ who's only embodied through the church which really makes just like a it doesn't actually get away from the disembodiment of Christ. It doesn't answer the you know, where's our embodied high priest? And it doesn't get at what you're actually talking about. And you don't think I heard you saying earlier that you didn't think that Christ was disembodied when he ascended. Yeah, I don't, I mean, I don't think that he's, you know, he had a body, and then he went up, and now it's just gone. Like, he doesn't have a body somehow, but I don't see the, how going into a different metaphysical realm would necessarily change that. Um, and I was curious about what your thoughts were I see, I see, I see, I'm sorry, I, I understand your question now. Man, it's, uh, thank you everybody for coming tonight. No. No. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no uh, I would answer yes. I think that, that, that Jesus' embodiment continues. Now, I, and as I say that, I, I'm not saying I understand what I'm saying. You know, part of, part of this is the issue even of when we think of material reality. We think we know what we're talking about. And when we talk about spiritual reality, we think that's different. But if you do anything with high energy physics, you know we have no notion what material reality is. In other words, we don't know what, that literally he holds all things together through his powerful word. Is the resolution to the, you know, the problem of what material reality is. All of this to say that, uh, I think that we're describing a hard thing, a deep mystery, Mm. Um, but nonetheless a pillar of the faith. I think this is the thing we need to believe 
not to necessarily understand. Mm-hmm. And what I mean by that is that, in other words, if I think you're right to to, if we focus too much on the church as the continuation of the incarnate Christ, then yeah, I think that could be He's a wrong. He's not embodied answer. somewhere. Right. What you're saying, he stayed a human. I mean, he, yeah, it's he, Jesus. Yeah. It's almost like monism—not monism. That's not the whatever that heresy is, where God just takes on three different forms. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's and you're almost getting at that because it would be like, well, Jesus Christ is really just the Spirit. If right. we only focus on that, yeah. right? So and so the Trinity. Is uh, there is still the Father? You know, this is the thing that I said there at the end. I may have said it too quick. That we cry out, Abba, Father, from the position of being in the Son through the Spirit. So that our participation in the Trinity is then the fulfillment of our being in Christ. So, yeah, it's not a, you know, the idea of uh, uh, the Father, that this is, that, that's the other thing that's happened in the Western Church. It's almost like we don't need the Trinity. But actually in passages, you know, like Romans 8, that Paul is describing a Trinitarian relationship that we are co-participants in. You need all three persons in the Trinity. But if we're talking about some sort of spiritual salvation, I think you lose lose the Trinity. Good question. Maybe better question.